This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, where he had lived, in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, Gal- of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Before Andy comes up and delivers the word tonight, I have one um, big announcement, actually two. I want, if you were unable to join us on Monday night for our all-church uh, meeting, um, we are working to get the link up. It's really long recording, uh, but we're looking to get the link up on this week's newsletter, so you'll be able to listen to all or part of it, and I encourage you to do do so, as there was a lot that was discussed on Monday night about this next quarter, um, and so check that out. A part of that meeting, um, I had the opportunity to introduce our new uh, CSA, that the Community Share Agriculture uh, Project that we're doing as a community. Several weeks ago, I introduced Kelsey Rarig, um, who is right here on the aisle. Kelsey, stand up as our new Garden Ministries um, Director. So tonight is officially uh, when we are launching the spring uh, movement for this CSA. It is an opportunity for our community uh, to share in agriculture by giving a little piece of land that we have, uh, that we own in our backyards uh, to, to garden and to steward. Kelsey is arranging mass quantities of seeds uh, and starts that we will be distributing to the community um, and will also be walking 
people through the process of how to care uh, for that your own unique space and um, cultivate food that you can share with this community. There's three main opportunities to join in on this. Um, the main one, we're looking for uh, gardeners in our community, people who have a space, big or small, that they're willing to contribute to this. Um, we're calling those people garden stewards. Um, and so if you wouldn't want to participate in this week or in this way, um, we are looking for people to do that. So this card, which will be out there in the entryway, gives kind of all the steps on how you can get involved in that. If you don't own your own property or you don't have any land to take care of, but you love gardening and you want to participate in that, we have a role for you too. Um, we call that a garden volunteer, and that is people who just want to help take care of land. There's people in our community who have land, but they have jobs that take them away, but they're like, hey, we want to donate space for people to garden, um, and we will utilize garden volunteers to take care of, of that land, so there's opportunities for you there. And then the last opportunity um, is for garden stewards, and what a garden steward is, is those are people who want to partner with Kelsey um, and want to help others who are just getting started and learning how to garden for the first time um, to go to their house, help them plan things out, help them know how to prepare their soil. So if you have a green thumb and you want to help Kelsey out in that way, um, that's the third area that we're looking for people uh, to help out. So how you can put your name in to get involved in any of those ways uh, is simply by by going to theophiluschurch.com forward slash garden. That's on this flyer out there. Fill out the little questionnaire. Say how you want to participate. We hope that the whole community can get involved in some way, big or small. Um, and Kelsey will be reaching out to you to get you all up to speed. Did I miss anything, Kelsey? You good to go? Talk to Kelsey if you want more information. And thank you for providing leadership for that. One more time. Awesome. So that's the main announcement. Andy, come on up and share the word with us. Great. Thanks, Cameron. Um, I have a couple volunteers who are going to be passing out, lovely volunteers, passing out some index cards to you. And I'll get to those sort of towards the end of the sermon. Um, don't write on them yet. I have a few students here, and we use index cards to take attendance in my class. We're not taking attendance at church. So you don't have to write your name and the date on the index card. We'll use them for something later. So this is the third week of Epiphany. Epiphany, again, is that season of the church calendar, comes right after Advent, and it's where we explore together through the lectionary who Jesus is. It's this big sort of waking up moment that the church has every year where we remember afresh who Jesus is, who the Messiah is, and what the Messiah has come to accomplish. And the, the theme that we're looking at through the lens of the lectionary this Epiphany is a new season has begun, applicable to our life as a community together, applicable to a lot of us individually as well. And when Jesus came, he was inaugurating a new season. So a new season has begun. Last week, Cam preached from the Gospel of John on the call of Andrew and Peter to follow Jesus. And if you remember in his sermon and in that text at the end of John 1, they were met with this question that I think that Jesus asked to all of us as well, and that question is, what do you want? If you recall from Cam's sermon, the answer that they gave is maybe the answer that we give as well. We want to see where wisdom dwells. 
We just want to be in the presence of Christ, the presence of wisdom. The lectionary does a very funny thing this week. If you were paying attention to the scripture just a moment ago, you're like, wait, we've heard that story already. The lectionary actually kind of doubles back and goes to Matthew and tells the story of the call of Andrew and Peter, but from Matthew's gospel. And there's some differences. It's a different perspective, and we'll talk about those in just a few moments. Last week, Cam used the image of lambs and sheep and shepherds. This week, we're going to look at fishing and nets. So we just heard Andrew and Peter are along the banks of the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, they're casting their nets into the Sea of Galilee. And all of this happens just after John the Baptist has been put into prison. And all four fishermen are just sort of going about their craft. I don't know how much you know about fishing, but fishing means different things to different people and probably conjures up a different image in your mind. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Georgia. And so we went largemouth bass fishing. Like that's what fishing meant. We, we did some trout fishing as well for small little rainbows and brookies and things like that. And those were like with little ultralight reels and uh, you were on these like small streams in the, uh, the Appalachian Mountains catching these little tiny fish and like tons of vegetation hanging over really tiny creeks. Fishing to my wife means something completely different. Like, I got super excited. When we were first married, um, I fished a lot more for bass. We lived right on a big reservoir and, uh, in Georgia, and there's great largemouth bass fishing there and striper fishing, and, like, you could catch big fish. And for me, a largemouth bass that was above six pounds is a big fish. She's already laughing because April grew up in Bermuda, and she went deep-sea fishing and sport fishing with her dad. And so they would fish for wahoo and tuna and mahi-mahi and marlin and uh, tarpon and all of these other fish. And their fish that they caught from the back of a boat were 40 to 100 pounds. So she laughed at me when I got excited about a six and a half pound fish. And I was like, look at this hog. I, I said that. that was, those are things that I've said <laughs> in life before. My colleague, uh, Joseph, he is a fly fisherman, avid fly fisherman, uh, born and raised in Oregon. He's from Corvallis, and he knows all of the rivers and their tributaries uh, all over the state. And so for him, fishing means taking a fly rod out, this broad expanse, and being able to sort of just get the time of the cast all day long and maybe hook a steelhead, maybe a salmon, or maybe just a, a little brook trout, a little brown trout. So when you hear that Peter and Andrew were fishing, you probably have something that comes to your mind, right? Well, there were three kinds of fishing in the ancient world. There was line fishing, which is usually done by hand, and it's kind of similar to what we do. You put a hook on the end of a line, you bait it up, you throw it out for fish, you pull it in. There's also casting of nets. You've probably seen people doing this, these big round nets. They've got lead weights on the outside. They can be like nine feet across, 25 feet across. You throw them out, and what happens? They land in the water, opened up, and then they drop down and close around the fish, and then you pull your line back out, and you've got these fish. That's what Andrew and Peter were doing from the side. They were casting their nets out. The other way that you could catch fish in the Sea of Galilee is you could use a drag net. This was a net that floated kind of vertically in the water, and when you drag it from the back of a boat, or ideally two boats, it creates this sort of cone shape to it. And you kind of come up on the fish unsuspectingly, and they get dragged right into the back of the net. 
And that's what James and John were working on when it says they were preparing their nets. They were preparing their drag nets to go out on the Sea of Galilee in their boats. Fishing was an ordinary profession. It was like a perfectly ordinary profession for ordinary people. By naming them as fishermen, the gospel writers are telling us something important about who the disciples were in their society. They were plain, ordinary people. They wouldn't have been wealthy, but they wouldn't have been super poor either. It was an ordinary profession for ordinary people. And Jesus comes to these ordinary men and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I often wonder if the disciples were like, oh, I see what you did there. That's cute. Fishermen, fishers of men. I see. This is notable in and of itself, though. If you remember last week, we saw what kind of the normal pattern of a disciple is. Disciple identifies a teacher and walks up to that teacher and says, can I learn from you? Can I follow you around? Can I see where wisdom dwells? And begins following after that teacher. In fact, the super radical teachers, they were known to kind of like shut down their disciples. And you had to come ask like multiple times if you could follow after them. That's the kind of teacher I am. I like deny entry into my classes. Then you have to petition. It's a whole big thing. When Jesus in Matthew's telling, when Jesus goes and calls the disciples and says, you follow me, he's totally breaking from tradition and custom. Teachers didn't go out and find their own students. They sat back and let those students come to them. He's inviting them to come and learn from him, to join in his work, but there's a cost. There's a cost because these men already have jobs, and Jesus says, I want you to come follow me now. I want you to come follow me at once. Leave your nets and come at once. So we're going to explore a little about what it means to leave something to follow Jesus and to leave at once. To leave and follow after Jesus is costly. Let's just get that out there at the very front. To follow after Jesus is costly. We see that from the story today. It was costly to the fishermen because they left their jobs. They walked off their jobs. To go do what exactly? How were they going to make a living? They were going to follow a guy around. That doesn't pay. I've tried that. Jesus was not hiring these guys. He was asking them to leave their jobs and to put their trust in him. He must have had something a lot more valuable than money. For James and John, it seemed like the stakes were even higher than for Andrew and Peter, though. And we can kind of deduce this just from like little nuggets that the gospel writers put in there about James and John. It said that James and John were preparing their nets to go out, these bigger drag nets. It says that they left their boats and their father to follow Jesus. A lot of the scholars look at that and say, like, these weren't like guys that were trying to catch a few fish, maybe go sell them in the market. This was the equivalent of like a commercial fishing enterprise. This is a family business with multiple boats, multi-generational, and these guys left all that in the middle of the workday to go follow after Jesus. So they weren't just leaving behind maybe a source of income. 
They were leaving behind the family business. They were leaving behind responsibility. In this first century Jewish culture, the adult children were expected to take care of their parents. So they were the head of the household. They were expected to provide for their father. He may have started the business, but they were in charge. So they leave more than just their income. They leave the whole business in shambles. And they followed at once. Now, fishing in the first century wasn't a bad thing. Like, this was not uh, an occupation that people looked down on. This was a pretty noble way to make a living. So it's not like Jesus was asking them to leave something that was bad and go follow him and do something that was good. He wasn't telling them to stop an addiction or leave a life of sin. He was saying, in spite of this good thing, I want you to leave and to follow me. I think maybe that's the first thing that we can learn about leaving. Sometimes Jesus is asking us to leave good things in order to follow after him. That's a kind of repentance. Jesus takes up this message that John the Baptist, his cousin, had already been preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what is repentance? We've talked about this before. Repentance is turning from something to Jesus. That's what repentance is. And that something that you're turning from does not have to be something bad. It can be something good. But if it's not Jesus, repentance is turning from it and turning to Jesus. So whatever we find ourselves focusing on that's not Christ, good or bad, the call is the same to us. To repent of that thing, to leave that thing, and to follow Jesus or follow Jesus again. Now there's sorrow in the leaving. And I'm sure Peter and Andrew and James and John missed some things in their following after Jesus. And Jesus wasn't asking them to be cold-hearted. James and John walked away from their family business. But he told them to leave those things and follow after him. Jesus and the gospel writers seem pretty unambiguous about that. That when you're called to follow Jesus, the leaving has to be a true leaving. Verse 23 begins sort of a new section in Matthew, and it says that Jesus went throughout uh, Galilee and Capernaum, uh, preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. So this is right after, at once, they left their nets to follow him. And I think this segue is important because it shows what they gained by leaving their nets. They got to follow along with Jesus and see Jesus perform miracles, heal people, cast out demons. Eventually, they'd see him raise people from the dead. But none of this would have happened if they'd stayed on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, if they stayed with what they'd known, with what was safe, with what was comfortable, with what defined their identity. A new season began in them only because they were willing to leave the old. We're called to leave things to follow Jesus. But not only are we called to leave things, we're called to leave things at once. And maybe this is the harder part of this teaching. 
I'm sure that these men were masters of excuses and delays, just like we are today. There's always a reason to put off otherwise good action, especially if it costs us something. I was like brainstorming a few of the the excuses that I usually run to. The first one is busyness. Well, I can't leave and follow Jesus because I, I don't have the time right now. I've got my work obligations, or I've got my education, or I've got my family commitments. And once things calm down a little bit, then I can leave this stuff and I can follow Jesus. Or maybe it's intelligence. I can't leave and follow Jesus because I don't know enough about the guy yet. I don't know the Bible well enough, so I can't do that. I don't know church history or theology or any of that stuff. So I'm not going to leave and follow after Jesus until I'm a little bit smarter about what it is I'm being asked to do. Maybe we have a high sense of responsibility. I will leave and follow you, Jesus, but first I need to take care of a few other things that you have entrusted to me. Let me first bury my father, is what one prospective disciple told Jesus when he said, come follow me. I think we often misinterpret what that prospective disciple was saying. He wasn't referring to a recently died father, a man that just needed a quick funeral. He was talking about his living dad, who probably was in fine health. And he was saying, let me wait until I have fulfilled the responsibility to my father, I've been a good son, and once he's died and he is buried, I'll find you where you are months, years later, and I'll come follow after you then. I'm just trying to be the good son, the son that you've told us that we should be. Reputation is another one, and this one gets us in two different ways. One, we might think that our reputation isn't good enough to follow after Jesus, Jesus knows what I've done. He doesn't want me among his followers. Let me clean up my life first. I'm not good enough to follow Jesus. I've talked to so many people who say, well, I don't go to church. I'm not good enough to go to church. The other way that reputation gets us is when we're overly concerned with what following Jesus might reflect upon our lives. What will other, think, other people think if I follow after Jesus? My friends and family, they're not Jesus followers, and so they wouldn't understand. I would get ostracized or cast out of my own home. I'd be alone. I think all those excuses, the busyness, intelligence, responsibility, the reputation, I think that they can be boiled down to one underlying thing. I think what's going on there is fear. I think we're afraid. We're afraid of the cost following Jesus. There's dozens of different permutations of fear, dozens of different masks that it wears, because we're afraid if we leave things to follow after Jesus, we'll end up alone, we'll end up destitute. We're afraid that for some reason Jesus will call us, but he will not equip us, that we will follow and not be fed But fear is a liar. Because you see, Jesus was never unaware of these things. Jesus knows what our hang-ups are. He knows our propensity to procrastinate, but he also knows that the timing is urgent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a lot to be done and not a lot of time left to do it in, so we have to move now. We have to move at once. Jesus is saying, let's go, let's get moving. A new season has begun. Come, follow me. He also promised that we wouldn't be left high 
and dry. Do you remember? He says, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Look all around you at the things that don't work and toil and spin. And your heavenly father takes care of all of those things. So why do you think he wouldn't take care of you? He even says later in Matthew's gospel that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life. The big promise. He's saying, yes, I've count the cost as well. You're going to be okay. If you were paying close attention to the reading this week, and comparing that against the reading last week, you'll notice that like, they're pretty different stories of how Peter and Andrew started following Jesus. Cam explored last week in the Gospel of John how Andrew was this disciple of John the Baptist. And in John's Gospel, Andrew was following after John the Baptist And John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and says, the Lamb of God. And he sees him on another day, the Lamb of God. And Andrew says, if that's the Lamb of God, I'm going to follow that guy. And then he invites his brother Simon. He says, Simon, you got to come meet this guy. And so Simon goes and meets Jesus. And Jesus actually renames him there. He says, I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. I'm going to build my church on you. In Matthew's account, though, like that's not what happens at all. In Matthew's account, says Andrew and Peter, not Simon. He's already been renamed in Matthew's account. Andrew and Peter are standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. Matthew says in the few verses before this that all this happened at the time right after John the Baptist was put into prison. So John wasn't anywhere on the scene. Luke, his gospel, has an account very similar to Matthew's. He goes into even more detail. In Luke's gospel, Jesus comes along, sees Peter and Andrew on the shore, casting their nets in. And Jesus says to Peter, let's put out in this boat. Just take me out to where the water is a little deeper. So Peter humors Jesus. They put out in the boat. They go to where the water is a little bit deeper. And Jesus says, okay, now drop your nets down on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, we did that all night. Like in this very spot, caught nothing. But he lets down the net. And he says, when he goes to pull it back up, it's so full that the boat starts to sink. And so they call help. James and John get in their boats. They come out and they help pull this huge haul of fish onto the shore. And it's at that point that Jesus says, follow after me, I'll make you fishers of men. And all four of them say, okay, we're in. And they follow. So what's happening here? What is, how, how can we have such, two, such different accounts of when Peter and Andrew, James and John go to follow after Jesus? If I were a skeptic or even just a close reader, I'd say, see, this is one of those examples of when the Bible contradicts itself. It can't even get its story straight. Like these are such different accounts that they seem like they're, they're two different stories altogether. John Chrysostom, who was a 4th and 5th century early church father, he thinks that's exactly what's happening. He says these aren't 
the same account. The account that happened first is the account in John's gospel. John the Baptist is still with them. They meet Jesus for the first time. They start following after Jesus. Jesus starts to pick up and amplify John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That message gets John put into prison, just waiting to be beheaded. Jesus starts amplifying the message even more. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the pressure starts to come down on Jesus and his followers. So how did Peter and Andrew and James and John end up back on the Sea of Galilee? They left him. They left him. And they went back to what they were doing before. They went back to their old way of life because it was comfortable. It wasn't hard anymore. Following Jesus had gotten really hard and dangerous. It was a threat to their lives. So they returned to those lives of fishing, and Jesus comes across them again. And you have this encounter. Come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Or that miraculous catch. Look what I'm going to do through you guys. Come back. Come follow me. This makes a lot of sense to me. Jesus was doing a kind of fishing of his own. His catch got away, so he goes after it again. Doesn't matter which kind of fishing that you enjoy. If you get a bite and that fish throws the hook, or you're pulling that net in and it's heavy, and then all of a sudden it opens up and they get away, you don't quit and say, oh man, almost had some. You go right after them again. You're like, there they are. I'm going to get that fish. Jesus' call for us to follow him is a perpetual call. He issues it again and again and again. He's patient. He perseveres like a true fisherman. Being saved is not the same as following Jesus. See, I think we often conflate the call to follow Jesus with the invitation to have our sins forgiven. We think that once we give over our lives to Christ and we are covered by his blood, that we've done the thing. We can check that box. We're getting into heaven. That is not the same as following Jesus. This past week, I took one of my classes down to our fire pit on campus and built this fire in it and had them read different selections from John's gospel about what it means to be a disciple. And one of the things that we read was John 21. It's the very last chapter of John's gospel. It also takes place around a campfire. In John 21, Jesus had already been crucified, had been resurrected, had appeared to the disciples in various places and at various times. And now he's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where his ministry began, and he makes another appearance. For reasons that aren't explained to us in John's gospel, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and a few other disciples are hanging out by the Sea of Galilee when Peter announces, I'm going fishing. 
The others follow him. They get nets, they go into boats, and they fish all night. They catch nothing. Early the next morning, while they're still in the boat, a man calls to them from the shore. He says, did you catch any fish? Nope, they reply. This is a perfectly normal conversation for fishermen. Then the guy on the shore says, throw your net on the other side of the boat and you'll find some fish. At this point, I imagine that the hair on the back of Peter's neck starts to stand up. This sounds very familiar. This has happened before. They let down their nets, and when they go to pull them up again, they can barely get them into the boat because they're so full of fish. By now, Peter has to know who the man on the beach is, but John beats him to it. He says, that's the Lord. And Peter throws off his coat and he jumps overboard. And we often pause the story right here, amazed at the faith of Peter. What a great guy. As soon as he realized it was Jesus, he dove off of the boat. He's going to swim and get to him fast. He wants to be the first one there. He's overjoyed. How eager, how obedient of him. What a role model for the rest of us. And I think that we're getting the story all wrong. Let's remember that fishing was not a pastime for Peter. Fishing was his livelihood. It was his job. It was what he left twice in order to follow Jesus. Peter wasn't fly fishing for fun. He'd chartered boats and nets and a crew and was out all night. Peter had gone back to his old life. Jesus appears out of nowhere to call Peter and the other disciples back to him to follow him again. And when Peter realizes who it is that's calling to them, that's calling to them from the shore, I think he was overcome by all the ways he'd gotten it wrong. I think Peter flashed back and remembered all of the times he'd been brash and impulsive, disobedient, the times that he denied Jesus multiple times to save his own skin. And now here he was, back at his old life, like nothing had happened. He wasn't a man of faith. He was the embodiment of failure. And then there was Jesus standing on the shore. And maybe Peter saw this as one more chance, one chance to get it right. And I imagine that Peter looked at Jesus and he saw the water that separated him and he remembered the last time that he'd seen Jesus separated by a body of water, Jesus walking across the water towards him and inviting him out of the boat. I don't think Jesus, I don't think Peter dove into the water. I think Peter expected to run across the top of it. Didn't matter that he sank to the bottom again. He was going to get to Jesus because this was a chance to make it right. And when he got there, Jesus had made a fire. And he gathered him around, Peter soaking wet. And he looked at Peter and he said, Bring me some of your fish. In that moment, Jesus redeems the very thing that Peter had turned away from, Jesus. He says, bring me some of that fish that you caught. You couldn't help yourself. Bring it on over here. And he cooked him breakfast over the fire. You know what the breakfast was? 
fish and loaves of bread. What do you think the disciples thought about in that moment? When they ate fish and loaves of bread with the one who had multiplied fish and bread. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him, he didn't choose them because they were apostles. They weren't. They were fishermen. He chose them because he knew they could become apostles. A call to follow Jesus is a call for a new identity. He changed fishermen into fishers of men. He chose them not because of what they were, but because of who they could become. And Jesus' call for you to follow him is not based on the merits of your identity and who you are. It's based on his knowledge of who you will become. You are being invited to have a new identity. One that makes you more and more into the likeness of Jesus and the Apostle Paul tells us that if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That the old is gone, the new has come. And if you're to become that person, then you have to leave the old and you have to do it at once. What are some of those things that we might need to leave at once in order to follow Jesus for the first time or to follow Jesus again? Because that call to follow Jesus is perpetual. It comes back to us over and over and over again. I want to suggest three things really quickly. And then we're going to spend some time in reflection and come to communion together. This is not an exhaustive list. These were the first three things that popped to my mind. But they're big things. You may be like Peter and Andrew and James and John. You may need to leave your job. That may be the thing where you're placing your identity and you're placing your hope that is preventing you from following Jesus. Peter was called out of his comfort zone to follow after Jesus, and you may be, may be called out of your comfort zone as well. You may be called to leave your politic, especially in this election year, a lot of rhetoric, divisive tactics. What if Jesus is calling you to leave that alone for a season and to follow him? Is your God big enough for that? At the risk of sounding cliche, you may be called to leave social media. Maybe your tech-mediated relationships are getting in the way of your relationship with the living God. There's other things that I could mention. I mean, anything that you put your hope and your trust in that isn't Christ, there's a call to repent from that, turn back to Jesus, to fix your hope and identity in him because the kingdom of God is near. You're being asked to leave those things at once and turn to Christ. What does it mean to leave any of those things? I mean, I don't know that there's like a good like one answer that I can give you. Could range from like literal leaving to figurative leaving. Does it mean that you have to quit your job? Maybe. Or maybe it means you change your aspirations for what you want to get out of your job. You change your attitude for how you conduct yourself in your job 
to more reflect who Christ is? Does leaving your politic mean you avoid political discussions and you don't vote in November? Maybe. Or maybe it means doubling down on centering your hope in God and not in a party or a person. Does leaving social media mean that you delete all your accounts? Maybe. Or maybe it's just a massive purge of those people who influence you, those other people that you literally follow. I think it's yes to all of those things. I think each of those is a valid way to leave. And if you quiet yourself and listen, you'll hear what faithfulness sounds like for you in your circumstance. But we have to do it at once. The gospel seems pretty unambiguous about that. At once means immediately, now. We have to acknowledge the fear behind our excuses. We have to be honest, whatever the cost of that honesty is, and trust that God is going to provide us a means to be obedient to his call. This matter of following Jesus is urgent because now, for Jesus, means now. I'm going to invite Megan up to play for us. And I want you to be able to take some time and space to respond right now. Because you may be being asked right now to leave something, to leave something at once. And this is where those cards that were passed out come in. I'm going to give us a few minutes to just be quiet and reflect on what we're focusing our attention on that's not Christ. And ask the Spirit if that's something we need to leave at once. And if it is, the invitation is very simple. The invitation is for you just to write down that thing or those things that you need to leave on that card. And then when you come up to take communion tonight, you can put them in this bowl right here, right on the altar. We'll have our folks that are giving communion will be kind of split out to the sides a little bit to have access to the altar in this bowl. And you put those cards in there. I'm going to gather them up after the service. And your staff and the elders and the council, your leadership at this church are going to pray through these things over the coming days and weeks. Because leaving to follow Jesus does not have to be a solitary affair. Nowhere does Jesus say that you have to do this leaving alone. We do this leaving in community. We do this leaving and cleaving to Christ with one another. When the disciples left their existing lives to follow Jesus, they were joining a community of other people who'd made similar decisions to leave and to follow Jesus. The community provides strength for this journey because you're not alone in leaving. You're not alone in paying a cost. So take a couple of moments. Spend some time in silence and some reflection. Write down those things that you need to leave so that we can pray for strength and clarity and wisdom and courage. And I'll close this time with an invitation in a moment for our communion servers to come down and I'll close us 
in prayer. But for now, just take a moment and listen to the Spirit. I invite you this evening to join us in continuation of our time together and our worship for a meal downstairs. Give the cooks a hug uh, when you're down there and thank them for preparing for us. If you brought something to give this evening, please give it in the back. There's a box in the back on your way out. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.